Hi, and welcome to the stories that brought you here, a podcast dedicated to the stories from the people on a little island off the coast of British Columbia called Pender. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I'll be speaking with current residents from our island to hear the stories that brought them to this stage of life that they're at right now, and to also hear the stories that brought them to our little island. This time around, I'll be speaking with Steve Dunsmere. Now, I think a lot of you will know Steve as the newly retired teacher from the Pender Elementary School, and I was really thankful that Steve agreed to do an interview because I myself not being a parent, but knowing a lot of parents on the island, I got to hear little snippets of stories about things that he was doing with his class on the island for the last few years. Now, for those of you who don't know, Steve was teaching an outdoor education program called the Pender Ecological Education Class. And in this interview, Steve describes a number of the things that they did. I think that we just actually wound up scratching the surface, but some amazing stories of some of the things he did with the school children on the island over the last number of years. Steve also goes in-depth into explaining how he was the teacher and principal on neighboring Saturna Island, where he started the Saturna Ecological Education Center for high school students there. And before that, he spent 20 years teaching in the Peace River region up in Dawson Creek. Steve will talk about those experiences and as well his passion of writing that he's involved with lately and a lot more in this really fantastic interview that we recorded outside in my yard. First time doing that, the sun was out and it was just this wonderful vibe. And I was so appreciative to share that experience with them. Two things I'm going to mention before we start. The first of which is that I asked Steve if he wanted to do an interview a couple years ago, and he declined the offer. And I circled back and asked him again recently, and he accepted. And we start the interview off with me asking what changed for him, which is a very interesting answer. And second of all is I just want to thank you for showing up to listen to this. It really means a lot to me that people listen to these podcasts. I think that this is an amazing opportunity to get to understand people in our community better. And it takes a certain level of participation to listen. Thank you for sharing some of your time with me and the guests that I have on this show and being involved. Okay, now that's out of the way. We're going to get to the interview right away, but first a little bit of music, and then my interview with Steve Dunsmere. And again, thanks for agreeing to do it. Like, were you no reluctant problem. before because you were a teacher or? Uh, no, I just don't like to talk about myself very much. <laughs> what changed? Uh, I've been doing a lot of writing about my past stories and experiences. So I feel more comfortable sort of communicating what's going on or what I've done or who I am through writing. So I figured I could try it through speaking. Cool, man. Seriously, that is really cool. Like, uh, I I appreciated uh, reading the book. I I didn't finish it. I was like, I'm going to save the last quarter for uh, for next winter. <laughs> okay. But that that's cool that uh, you're working on the new book. Yeah. What was the theme of that one again? 
The next one is uh, travel stories. So I've got 10 travel stories that are fairly long. And then in between, I have travel tips that are based on other experiences that don't quite make a full story. So right now I've got the 10 stories written and the, the travel tips. I'm on the fifth one started this morning. So, And uh, it's nice because it gives me a chance to put little pieces together from past trips just based on the theme. So I have, I have one that's... Um, travel tip is when you're crossing an international border always expect the unexpected so it allows me to talk about the time when uh, i was super prepared taking four girls from here down to a conference in california and we had to cross the border and so i had everything notarized and letters of permission from the parents and and a full itinerary of the trip and all their birth certificates they all had to get passports so we had about 150 pounds of paperwork and the guard just looked at it and said, have a nice trip. He didn't even open the folder. Oh, my gosh. And after all that work, and we were so freaked, you know, the girls were right behind me in the lineup so they could explain it as well or corroborate my story. And I had, I had the youngest one ready to cry in case we, they said no, and maybe we could still get in. And so we had all these plans and backup plans, and it was like a five-second experience. And yet, on the other hand, when we were on the top of the world highway, driving from Alaska to Dawson City, we came upon this tiny little border patrol station on top of a mountain where you'd think like James Bond would be there to blow up a um, Soviet missile <laughs> base or something. And this woman opened the door and asked our kids if we were really their parents. And it was just like, we're in the middle of nowhere. Where do we get the smuggling ring where we bring kids in from, uh, from Alaska? So it was just, just to totally un expect the unexpected. And then the time we were stopped in northern montana by a border guy who looked very serious and told us our passports weren't valid and we just spent a lot of money to get the passports and we're looking forward to a trip but he just looked at us and said these aren't valid and we were just like what and he says you haven't signed them and he gave us a pen and said sign them and then you'll be on your way so he just chuckled away at us so so writing the stories allows me to uh, this approach allows me to hook a whole bunch of little incidents together so it's kind of fun. Yeah, I guess you get a lot of pleasure out of writing the stories, obviously. Oh, it's fun to write them. And it's also, um, I think of it as family history. Because so often my parents and Laura's parents have, and their, our grandparents have had a lot of stories that we remember them telling us as kids, but nobody ever wrote them down. And it's kind of sad to think that that history will be gone with us. And... I don't want that to happen. I mean, there's a lot of things that I've done that my family has done, that Laura's done, that I think are are worth preserving, family stories that are worth preserving. Because now we we think back to some of the stories our parents, our grandparents told us, and we don't quite remember the details. We don't quite remember how it felt for them to be in those situations or what the context was or what exactly was said. So uh, it feels good to be writing this stuff down and, and sort of honoring honoring my past and putting where I am in perspective. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of powerful that way. Yeah, totally. I, I think that the more that you do write down, then people are able to get a good uh, perspective of what kind of a person the writer is by yeah. the, the more that's there because you, you see, oh, there's some through lines, some consistencies, because just having one personal essay versus 50, you can yeah. really get a way better idea of what 
that person was like who wrote those stories and, and had those experiences based on this is how I'm choosing to tell this story. Yeah. That's been some of the best feedback I got on the first collection of short stories was people say, I didn't know who you were really until I started reading your stories. And now I know I'm never going to go camping with you. <laughs> There's no chance. So, yeah. So people have just seen me in passing or just assumed they knew who I was, but then they read the stories and they're like, wow, I saw a whole different side of you. It's kind of scary and kind of funny at the same time. So Yeah, well, that's the theme in the collection of short stories is that you have this goofiness, this humor, this playfulness that exists through all the stories, right? Yeah, I hope that comes across. Uh, yeah, it totally comes across. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> yeah. For sure it does. Okay, well, uh, let's uh, go into the first traditional question here that we touch on to uh, start the way we normally do, and that's what brought you to Pender Island. That's a complicated question. Uh, I guess my grandmother brought me to Pender Island. Her and my grandfather bought a place on Pender back in the mid-60s when Magic Lakes Estates was first being established. And they bought it right over, just down from where we're living now near Boat Nook, and a little cottage, a little Panaboat cottage. Um, they brought it in on a truck in two pieces, and they jackknifed on the on the hill there just above Driftwood. Coming down that hill, the truck got stuck for a long period of time, but there was no traffic back then, so it didn't matter. Dr the Driftwood didn't exist. We had to go to um, Hope Bay, Port Wash store, and um, Bedwell were the three stores. And making a trip there felt like a huge day's excursion into the middle of nowhere to go and uh, check out the penny candy or pick up some milk. So that that's what really hooked me on Pender, was was coming to Grandma's Cottage uh, every summer. And then eventually um, Laura's parents retired, and they picked up a spot on Pender Island right in um, Hope Bay, Welcome, well, right beside Welcome Bay. And they did it more or less based on my recommendation that this was a great place to come. They came over and met my grandmother and were, were just smitten with this place. And uh, so they lived here for 20 years. And her dad, Sandy Pearson, was one of the people who helped to build the hall. And he worked for the library uh, when the library was first just getting started. And her mom was in the quilting club and the art society. And so they were really involved in the Pender culture. and. Again, we would come and visit them and bring our kids. So our kids fell in love with the place. Um, so we, I spent 20 years living in Dawson Creek, and it was a beautiful place to raise kids, but it was not, it didn't ever felt like um, home the way the ocean and the, the West Coast did. So I had an opportunity to um, get involved in a master's program at Royal Roads University. And that, I had to search around for a sponsor and a project. and. I decided, why don't I find a project or a sponsor who is in the Gulf Islands, which is where I'd like to be. And uh, I, I pitched the idea of, a, of planning an outdoor education center for the school district I was in, Peace River, and they weren't interested. They said that wasn't a priority for them. So I cast about and found that um, this little district, Gulf Islands, was interested in, in that kind of thing, and that the Gulf Island Center for Ecological Learning, GICEL, was operating here in the summer, running summer programs. And so I hooked up with them, and Michael Dunn, the leader of GICEL, became my sponsor. And I started interviewing people in the school district 
who were responsible for the program, and then the job on Saturn opened up as principal. I didn't quite have my master's done by then, but I figured I'd apply. At the same time, um, I got an interview for the school in Banfield. So I came down, and both interviews were the same weekend, which was kind of crazy. So I chose the one in Banfield just because I'd been there a couple times as a teacher and, and found it pretty exciting. And the nice people here and decided that I could do a phone interview for them. So I spent the morning in a hotel in Port Alberni doing a phone interview with a bunch of people sitting on Saturna around a table. And uh, I was pretty loose because I had lots of opportunities at that point. And uh, it went really well. I was, I was able to relax and, and feel like I could use a sense of humor. And I think they appreciated that because they knew anybody being a principal on Saturna had a sense of humor. And that was one of their main, one of their main uh, requirements. And then I went and toured the school in um, Banfield. And I came away from that saying, gee, I sure hope I get the job on Saturna. It was pretty scary what, what they were asking. And so I came back to the hotel and there was a call waiting for me. And it was from a superintendent on the Gulf Islands. And she said, we'd like to offer you the job on Saturna. I said, yep. <laughs> She's like, well, you can have some time to think about it. Because I still had not done my interview with, uh, Port Al- with the Port Alberni people. I just toured the school. So I said, no, I'm not thinking about it. I'll take it and just accepted the job right there. Um, had to go into the dining room and track down the superintendent of the Port Alberni School District and say, I'm, I'm not going to be around for the for the interview tomorrow. <laughs> I'm out of here. I got a job. So he congratulated me, and uh, off I went. So ended up on Saturna with, um, there were five kids there in the school, and I was bringing two more. And people looked upon me as this amazing person bringing more kids to the school. Wow! <laughs> you know, I could have had, I could have had nothing on my resume except the, the occasional axe murder, and I'd still get the job because I had two kids that I was adding to the school. So I was increasing the school population by thirty-three percent or whatever percentage that is. So why was that important that you were increasing the school population? The, in their the mind? school has always been. People always said, "Well, how can you keep a school going with so few people?" And they're always worried that the school will get closed down and the kids would be forced to water taxi to Salt Spring. And so, and also to have some fresh new blood on the island was important to them. And they had been, um, Saturna had been kind of subjected to a series of principals who didn't live there. They would water taxi in and they saw it as a stepping stone to a job on Salt Spring. And the fact that Laura and I actually wanted to live there with our kids. Um, really impressed them that we were make, ready to make that commitment, and they kept warning us. Do you know what you're getting into? Do you do you, do you understand what Saturna's like? And we said, Well, we've been there a couple times, and we've we've we looked at it through our parent our parents' window for many years, and <laughs> <laughs> never knew we'd be there. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll do it. And we moved to we moved to Saturna, which was a huge culture shock for for us and kind of crazy for our kids, but uh, it turned out to be a great move. And why did it turn out to be a great move going to Saturno? Um, well, we felt like we were back closer to family. We were back to the coast. Uh, I was able to feel like I was teaching in a district that had more of an environmental consciousness as opposed to the oil and gas industry up, up in the Peace River region. And the people were really welcoming. Saturno is a, well, a fantastic little community. There were some amazing people there who supported us and and then when I came up with the idea to 
to create the Saturn Ecological Education Center. It was interesting because half the island jumped on board and was excited, and the other half said, not in my backyard, but mostly we got a lot of support, and we felt like we felt like we had come to a community, whereas in when we lived in Dawson Creek, we were we had friends and we had activities, but we never really felt like we were a, an integral part of the community. And being the a teacher and principal, the only teacher and principal on Saturna, you know, you knew you knew you were a part of things. And I joined the softball team and I joined the fire rescue group just to get even more into the community and feel like I was part of things. And uh, it was both a blessing and a curse because all you know everybody knew you and everybody waved and everybody said hi but you know uh, you had to watch watch everything you did i didn't go to the pub very often <laughs> i made sure that everything we did was uh was something that people would think was reasonable for a principal sure so, yeah so it was a little, little tricky when everybody knows what you're up to and who you are um and i'd been used to sort of anonymity up in uh, up in the north and and you mentioned the ecological center because we've talked a little bit about this before, but maybe yeah. if you could explain a little bit about that for the listeners. Well, um, I was trying to figure out ways to get more kids in the school, and I looked around our school. The school, little school on Saturna, is just an amazing little spot with um, large fields close to the beach, close to the forest, and of course, right away the environmental aspect jumped out at me. And I'd done my master's thesis on. Um, I I wanted to make my master's thesis something practical rather than something theoretical that would just sit on the shelf and gather dust. So I thought, okay, what if I took the principles and the philosophies and the pedagogy behind the, the Gulf Island Center for Ecological Learning, which does day programs in the summer, what if I took those and applied them to a public school? And so my thesis became a search for what was it that made JISO special and what made it work? And uh, I was able to take everything that I'd learned from that and come up with this concept for an environmental program on Saturna that embodied all the best of what JISO had to offer, but in a school setting. And then I wrote a story for the local, well, they call it the Scribbler on Saturna, about what a day in the life could look like. And I wrote it as if it actually already happened. And we were five years in. And so that was kind of fun. And people first saw the article and hadn't read the disclaimer at the front. So they were wondering well, how this new school had been created without them knowing. But eventually, uh, a lot of them came on board. And then I pitched it to the school district. I gave them a full, a full outline. I think it was like a 50-page document that included what my vision for what it could be and how it would work and how it could be funded. And how it could benefit uh, the district and the island and the na the natural world. And, of course, I had my recently completed master's thesis behind it. So we had a, a brand-new superintendent at the time, Jeff Hopkins, and he was the kind of person that liked to take risks and liked to be in innovative, and he thought, if it was good for kids, let's do it. So he jumped on board, and we put together a, a panel of, of educators from around the district and and came up with an idea and his his brainwave was let's make it for high school kids because they bring in the most funding <laughs> okay. and they won't need a place to they, they they're more self-sufficient so they won't have to you know you can't really bring a a nine-year-old over here and have them have them live here without their family because the idea was that it would be a place where kids lived 
and the fact that they lived there in the forest, we hoped, you know, chopped their own wood, made their own food, created gardens, learned about alternative energy systems. That would be the curriculum. So just very, just the basis of living would become something they could earn credits for. And so that made a lot more sense for a high school kind of program. Sure. And uh, so we created the program and the high school on Salt Spring sent over all the kids that they thought might benefit from it. And away we went. And uh, yeah, so it it's still going today. And eventually uh, it became so popular. We um, One aspect is we would, well, I, had a, I developed a course called Teaching and Learning. And in that I would train the high school students to be what I called environmenters. And they would lead groups from other places. And that would be the way they could pay it forward, but they could also reinforce their knowledge and their skills by teaching others. And so we had over a thousand kids come to the island in groups with our guys as leaders. And a whole bunch of uh, younger kids fell in love with the place. Parents would come to help out with the groups and they would look, walk around the site and they would just go, wow, this is incredible. I wish my kid could learn like this. And I said, well, why not send them? So we ended up at one point having 12 kids come from Salt Spring every morning on the water taxi to attend the little school, not the high school program. And so the SEEK program grew from being a bunch of high school students living in the forest uh, to a whole cohort of, of up to 30 people from kindergarten to grade 12. So it, it grew to be this amazing, uh, amazing little community of learners. And eventually the, the people got tired of coming to Saturna because they'd have to get up at 5.30 in the morning and get home at 7.30 at night off the water taxi and uh, do it again the next day, do it again the next day. And I was always so amazed and grateful that they would show up in the morning, but we were all, must have been done doing something right. So somebody suggested, you know, water taxis, the schedule is set up to bring kids from the outer islands to the to the center of the universe, Salt Spring Island. So why not establish your program on Salt Spring? So I set up I set one up at the Salt Spring Island Middle School for all the middle school kids. So right away we had forty four kids sign up and Sarah Bateman and I got a program going there. So eventually um I couldn't hack the Salt Spring lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, after Saturna, it was just so busy. Sure, yeah, it was yeah. just so busy, and we could, and there was not a sense of community. And and then I got kind of burnt out at at Seek, because it was a very demanding job, working with the high school students. And so I thought, you know, by the time they get to grade eleven or twelve, it's almost too late to really get them to become environmentally aware and caring and to change attitudes. So I thought, ideally, if I could get them, say, around grade four and work with them until maybe grade 12, that would be the way to do it. That would be the way to have a really powerful impact on the way people adjust to their natural environment and love their place. And I thought, where can I do that? Because everywhere in Salt Spring, the elementary school only goes to grade five. And Saturn is too small. And the only place in the district that fit that criteria was Pender Island. 
Ding, ding, ding. Pender Island. That's a long way to answer your question. No, it's uh, complicated. This is great. Well, <laughs> as you're speaking, I had so many questions oh, along sorry. the way. But no, that's okay. I, I didn't want to interrupt, but it, there's so much more to the story, right? You're just there's, giving a brief description. Tons, yeah. Yeah, but maybe the first question I have about that is that what started you on the path of conceiving of this idea? Like, where where did that begin for you about, you know, I think this is going to be really helpful and important to, uh, to children, and I really like to turn this into a reality. Like, where was the, the nugget of the thought for that? Yeah, I've thought about that a lot because I'm the only one in my family who's who's kind of got this interest. None of my other siblings um, really are into being outside and learning outside and they don't really get what I do. So I don't know. I think it might've just been my dad took us on a lot of hikes and, and such, um, before he left the family. And I just remember the moments of wonder and awe at seeing things, at being outside. And we had a sailboat, we lived up in Alert Bay. So we did a lot of exploring. And I just remember this love of uh, finding this love of nature. And uh, I remember climbing a tree in his backyard one time and just sitting there and a couple of birds landed in the tree and I'd never seen birds so close. And I'd never seen birds so beautiful. I think it was a goldfinch and just a flash of color. And, and I was just hooked on how amazing this was. And it was like a hidden world I'd never seen before. So I think I just became enamored with this need to be be immerse myself in natural places and I grew up with that and whenever I got a chance I would get out and hike and bike and camp and and canoe and that kind of thing and uh and I met Laura on a canoe trip actually this is your wife yeah <laughs> my life well, yeah so I met her on the Bower and Lake chain when we were both in grade 12 and that kind of solidified my lifestyle in terms of being outside and then when I when I was a teacher in um in the South Peace region I was the number one user of the outdoor site. We had a little outdoor site in the Rocky Mountain, foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It was amazing. But a lot of teachers were really intimidated by getting their kids out there and knowing what to do with them when they got there. So I would use it as much as I could. And that became kind of my thing is to take kids out there three or four times a year and cross-country ski and use the sauna and, and hike and camp and I never thought of taking it any further than that because the Dawson Creek landscape is not really conducive to that kind of exploration. So when I got down here, I think it just made sense to, in this place, to do what, to do what I wanted to do in terms of making my, my career more interesting and more ecological. So when you mentioned earlier that meeting Laura solidified things for you of spending time outdoors means that you, you found a partner who wanted to share those things with you. And exactly. Yeah. 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 I found someone who I thought that we were on the same wavelength and that, um, it was one of the, f the first time in my life in, in high school where I, where I kind of had somebody interested in me as well, who also shared that most of the girls I was interested in or was friends with or dated had no interest in the outdoors. They were, more into the suburban kind of consumer culture. And it never felt quite right. When I finally met Laura, it's like it seemed just seemed to click and and we we shared a canoe together for five days. So, you know, carrying the canoe along the trails and paddling down lakes and rivers and that was a pretty good bonding experience. Yeah. 
And when you're super young as well, too. So you said you were 18 years old? I was, I think so. I was, yeah, I was 18. She was 17. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then you also mentioned about doing the initial group adventures with the students and you said it would make your career more interesting. So when you're coming up with ideas about, oh, I want to go and be in nature with students, I guess, was it a combination of this is going to be really exciting for me and this is going to really light a fire within me going out and doing these things. But clearly you wanted to share and allow kids to discover what the outdoors is all about through these programs, right? Right. I wanted to make it, well, I wanted to have fun. <laughs> I wanted it to be a worthwhile career. I didn't want to just have it be a job. I wanted to be, I wanted to feel like it was who I, I was being true to who I was, but also offering kids a chance to be more in touch with what, what was around them. You wanted to have fun. I wanted to have Boys just want to have fun. Yeah, well, that's that's really cool, actually, because like, the, the idea of, oh, I, I want to make sure that what I'm doing for a job, I'm having fun with. Yeah. Like have how, a passion. you got to have that passion. Yeah. You know, and so many people who I, I looked around at, they were just waiting for retirement. And they, you know, Monday was a, Monday or September was was dread for them. And I never wanted that to happen. My, my favorite month of the year was September for a number of years, just because. I got a fresh start with a fresh group of kids. And a lot of people would look at going back to work in September as, oh, the summer's over, crap, you know. But not me. And I think that that requires work. That requires following your passions. And I was just lucky enough through my career to have key people who allowed me to do that, who, who had faith in what I was doing. And a lot of parents who had faith in what I was doing and that it would all work out for their kids. You seem like a really creative person. I think that in order to make these things happen, you have to dream them up first and have a lot of creativity. And I'm sure most, well, not everything that you've dreamt up, you've been able to accomplish or do, right? True. And that, uh, so what I'm hearing is that through a lot of dreaming and creativity, you're able to create a, a way better work experience for yourself and then in the meantime also provide something totally unique and adventurous for the students that you're teaching yeah so i've taken it as a personal challenge a lot of the time to try and make things even more exciting year after year which is hard to do when you've got the same students for five years in a row and uh when seek decided to go a different way a couple years back i had a principal who was very very traditional they decided that students could only stay there for a certain amount of time because they were getting tired of having to come up with new courses for them so that they could get the credits they needed. And so they said, well, you're only going to allow to stay for one year and then you have to move on. And to me, that was like, okay, you're teaching courses, not, not people. Mm. And so suddenly a whole number of students who loved Saturna and Sieg were displaced. They were told they had to go. And back in the day when I was there, I would love to have them want to come back because I didn't have to worry about enrollment issues. And I, I would have to go and scour, scour the countryside for students every, every spring to make sure that I had enough kids for the next year. And here they're saying, we don't want you back. And three of those kids were from Saturna, or from Pender, sorry. And I just felt for them because they'd been in my class on Pender and I'd recommended Seek and they were doing so well. And now they're being told they couldn't come back. So I, I sat down and thought, well, what can I do? Why don't I, why don't I start a high school program here on Pender? 
So I did that. We actually sat around a table at, at Renee's house, Renee Watson's house. She had a solstice party at her place, and a lot of the kids were there. And then we ended up sitting around the table, and I said, why don't we do a high school program here for them? And um, two months later, I created the high school class at, at Pender, and I was able to bring in or provide a place for the three kids who were displaced, and they were happy to come back. And I also we got one of the students from Salt Spring and one from Shawnigan Lake and uh, one from East Vancouver, all from Seek because they didn't want them. Wow. Okay. And so this was the transition from Saturna to Pender. No, this was, I'd already been teaching for three years. Uh, I'd already started with a bunch of grade four kids and taking them up to grade seven. Okay. And well, let, let's, gonna... let's pick it up there. Let's, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, because to just backtrack a little bit. So when yeah. you said that you were working through Salt Spring and then you realized, okay, I don't want to have to just pick up students at grade 11. I want to have them a little bit younger. Right. So then you, uh, an opportunity came up through Pender Island School to uh, to do that here. Um, I don't know if I'd call it an opportunity. I had to make it happen. That's always been kind of a, a sticking point between my wife and I. Is I think I have to make things happen, and she thinks you should just let things happen. So we have a, a constant. It's a it's a balance, right? You think I think a lot of things won't happen unless you make them happen, and some people just coast along and think. Yeah, it's going to happen. If it happens, it happens. So It sounds like a perfect partnership with <laughs> yeah. you and Laura. That's fantastic because if both of you thought the same way, it uh, probably wouldn't That's work as true. well. That's true, yeah. So <laughs> I had to make it work. And uh, Cameron Fraser was the principal here, and he'd been my vice principal on Saturna. So he'd seen what, what I was doing, and he really liked it. And so he said, well, we could do that here. And at the same time, he'd talked to the wines, Don and Linda, on the ferry, and they said, we've just purchased this beautiful piece of property beside the community hall, and, you know, it'd be great if school kids could use it. And so we kind of put those two ideas together. It's like I, I kind of wanted to come to Pender and, and work with a, a bigger range of kids. And Cameron and the Wines really wanted to have kind of some kind of an outdoor farm program. Mm -hmm. And so they had a vacancy here, and I applied for it. Just about didn't get it after I sort of created the program. But I got the spot and uh, started with a bunch of grade four, fives, and sixes. Okay. Well, this this is the part of the story that I'm so fascinated by, and I really want to go into the details about because uh, I really would love to have this documented as to what you did through this program. <laughs> Seriously, but w what year did this uh, start in? Oh, my God. Uh, it would have been six years ago, so whatever that is. Uh, 2015? 2015. 2015. So uh, grade four, that's about the age of uh, nine? Yep, nine. Oh. Okay, Eight, so nine, ten, depending on the birthday, yeah. What'd you guys do? What was going on that first year? Uh, I tried to do a lot of the things that we did at Seek with the high school students, and we started the year with a shared ordeal. That was kind of a concept I came up with, where you would introduce an element of danger. Well, actually, there's a story about it in my book. I'm not sure if you read that far, but um, what I would do is I'd take the kids out someplace they'd probably never been before subject them to an element of danger where the only way they they could succeed or survive was to work together. And not only would that provide them with that bond that they needed for the year, but lots of stories to share for the rest of the year. And so we, start, we started with that. And I think the first year we went to uh, Saturna because I knew it so well. And we 
did some amazing hikes where I just gave them some coordinates and a GPS receiver and said, okay, work your way from one to the next. And, and I'd done, I'd set up a number of those on Saturna. So uh, it was pretty easy to do, but um, they were just blown away. And I remember hiking along Brown Ridge in the sunset, knowing we had to bushwhack through the forest still to get to where we were going in the dark was, was pretty cool. And a lot of the kids were, um, well, about half the kids I'd say were, they'd done that kind of thing with their parents. So they were really enthused by it. And the other half had been kind of put in the class because either parents wanted them to be more outdoorsy or because nothing, no other program had really worked for them before. And that's kind of the, the common pattern for, for Seek too, is we'd get kids who, who had never found their people before. Mm. Or we'd get people who were coming to, you know, coming to us rather than escaping something else. And, and it made for a really interesting blend. So I, I had that here on Pender too. And so the idea was to, to throw something at them, let me see who they were and what they were capable of, but also introduce them to what I kind of expected and what they could expect for the rest of the year. And we did a lot of visits to the farm. The wines were fantastic about allowing us to to uh, build fire pits and build little shelters in the forest. We had one little incident where um, we started a fire, forest fire, <laughs> but uh, that was quickly put out. And then we no longer built fires in the forest, but we set up a central fire pit. And then Don built us a, an outhouse and a shelter. And we put in a disc golf course and we set it up like a, an ecological learning site. And then we started to bring in classes from Salt Spring and other places, Victoria and Squamalt. And, and my students, grade fours, fives, sixes, sevens, would act as the leaders. Wow. And that was pretty cool to see some of them leading kids older than them, but coming across as being very knowledgeable about what we were doing. It was, and we set up the disc golf course so that at each tee box there was an activity. So they'd come in and they'd, you know, a whole number two, they would, uh, there was a little path and they had to walk the path, which was a loop, and they had to spot as many little animals hidden as they could. And if they came back and gave the right number, that was great. They got to play the hole and go on to the next thing. If not, they had to go around again. Oh my gosh. So it was a real, really cool observation task. You know, then they go to the next one and there'd be another little, another little ecological place-based challenge for them. And so by the time they got to hole 18, it was time to go home. You know, that was, that was their day. And somewhere out in the forest, they'd stop and have lunch. So it could be in the middle of nowhere, all depending on how they did together as a group. And the fact that my little guys were leading this was, I thought, I found was amazing. And the, the teachers who, who came just fit right in. They didn't have to do anything. They got to learn and wander around and have fun with their kids. So it became really popular. You know, that was kind of one of the, one of the things that we would work our way up to. And that, so that became part of the, part of the class activities, getting ready for those kind of things, creating learning resources, coming up with ideas. Uh, when we built the disc golf course, the kids had to decide what to call each hole what theme there would be. Right, because I've seen this disc golf course, and what, what it is is that the target. So for people who don't know what disc golf is, it's yeah. basically Frisbee golf. So Frisbee you, golf, yeah. Yeah, That's Frisbee it. golf. But uh, what, what you did is that you took found objects that have been left behind from previous owners of the farm. Yes. 
And so there was an ironing board, some yeah. old tires, and and you have to hit the target. Yeah. And uh, and anyway, and then then they were named. Each had individual names. Yeah. Most of the stuff we gathered from all the little cabins in the bush. There's been a lot, been a number of people who lived on that site over the years, and they'd left behind a lot of stuff. You know, for example, hole 18 is a cooler, old Coleman metal cooler, and it's up in a tree, and the hole is called Way Cooler. <laughs> and the idea is to throw it, throw the disc and land it in the cooler. So each each um, group of small group of my class was given a hole that they were to adopt, and they were to, you know, clean the fairways and get rid of hazards and come up with a name for it and figure out what they were going to do to make that hole special. And then it all came together in the end. So yeah, it was. I mean, the highlight was when um, Chris Hartman came over. You know, I'd invited the local disc golf guys to come over, and then I looked out in the field one day, and here comes Chris Hartman. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's a, this guy's played on Team Canada in the World Championships. And uh, I was worried about, he, about what he would think, but he loved it. He, he did, loved, yeah, yeah. He, lo- he, he had trouble with it because it was not like an, an average course, but here's this world champion disc golfer throwing discs at, uh, at things hanging in trees and into a recycle bin and so on. And he liked it so much, he um, bought us a basket. And so we set up a course at the school using the basket. So, Yeah, so that was the kind of thing I wanted to do, was create community projects that uh, benefited the kids, but also benefited the people of, of Pender Island. And that would become our curriculum. And so I try to make it, well, it's called, it's called place-based, I guess is the pedagogical term for it. But I want it to be very place-based. And if you start with a project in mind, it's amazing all the different curriculum outcomes you can put into it. You know, your English can be there. You can read about it. You can write about it. You can talk about it. And there's so much math involved in everything you do. There's science. There's social studies. There's art. There's, you know, creating a disc golf course sounds, you know, might sound like a kind of frivolous, fun activity, but you can work so much into it. You can turn it into a really solid curricular learning experience that, you could defend if the minister of education came over, you know, and we we used to have a parade of education ministers come to seek, you know, higher, all the higher ups just to show what we were doing. And they always left blown away. So I knew it was possible. So a question I have is that when you're seeing the kids interacting with these, um, I was going to say tasks, but that's not the right word, but with these, these programs that, that uh, they're partaking in, Clearly, you're seeing a lot of stimulation going on through body language, I would imagine, that versus, you know, like, I went to school and sat in a chair and was taught in a very traditional way. And what you're describing sounds amazing. I love the outdoors. I love being outside. And uh, I think I would have really thrived and enjoyed that experience. And it sounds like most of the kids, if not all of them, probably did. But was that pretty visible through your your eyes of being a teacher and witnessing is it pretty obvious to see that the kids are having a hard time or where there's some struggles along the way what what was it that you were seeing within the kids who were in this program yeah because they sort of self-selected in most cases the kids wanted to be there right from the start so it was pretty pretty obvious and pretty consistent to see them excited and wanting to come to school and some of them had had a really sort of patchy attendance record until then and then they wanted to go to school every day and that really surprised their parents and I had a number of home learners that was another piece of the puzzle at the start was I ended up with I think 
seven or eight kids who'd been part of the Spring Leaves home learning program. And they got into an age where their parents were wanting to give them more, but not sure what they should do. And so this program seemed to fit that. So that was kind of interesting because I had one little boy who, who would only come if his parents promised he could call them and go home <laughs> whenever he wanted to. And he did that once, and that was it. He was hooked. And I had other kids who, who weren't really strong at reading or writing, who suddenly got turned on by what we were doing, and the reading and writing was made more sense to them in terms of the context, and then they just flew. So there were there were personality clashes here and there, but you know that's one of the dangers of having kids in your class for five years in a row. Is if you don't get along, it's it's hell for both of you. But that, that never happened. That, that was never the case. People could leave if they wanted to. And um, I had learned through my career how to, how to adapt and appreciate to all learners. I guess the, that there's just so much opportunity for trying different things that allows that to happen, right? Like that if, if it's, because yeah. it sounds like it's open-ended. That is like whatever you can dream up. It's open-ended and a lot of other teachers would tell me they're really stuck. They're really restricted to what they can do. That the curriculum is really restrictive and the timetable is really restrictive. And how can you possibly do what you do? And the, one of the key things is they're, they're so worried about covering the curriculum that they don't discover things. Whoa. Right. And then they're so worried about teaching courses and not teaching kids. And, and once you get that mindset, it seems like, yeah, it's really hard to cover everything you're supposed to cover. And to me, it's no, no, that's not our job to cover things. I mean, another word for cover is bury. And we want to open things up to kids. So it's all about discoverage. And so I think if you have that mindset, it helps. Um, but also you have to have kind of a track record. You know, it's really hard for a beginning teacher to say, I want to do this. And, you know, I want to, take the kids up this mountain in the, in the dark and have the principal go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so you sort of have to build that trust over the years and have a few letters after your name. That really helps. Um, and also have a few things go well. And then you got a bit more flexibility. So as the years went on with the program, what sort of other things did you wind up doing with the kids? Because you talked about upping the ante and trying new things. Uh, what sort of new adventures and ideas did you have as the years went on through the program? Oh, there was a number of things. We had, we'd end up, um, one of my loves is drama. So I would create these elaborate productions for Christmas concerts. And, and, uh, so we do a lot of drama, a dramatic work. And then one of the highlights I think was, um, I wrote a play based on a Christmas carol where there's visited by three ghosts. So I wrote an environmental play called Scunge where Scunge is, instead of Scrooge is um, visited by a ghost because he doesn't have a very environmental lifestyle. And so I wrote this play and, and, uh, with Seek, we did a road show. We loaded up our little bus and we went to schools all over the district and my kids performed it. And again, that was my way of not only giving them credits for drama and English and so on, but for them to play these roles was kind of to ingrain the principles and the ideas within them. And then I did that again with the kids here on Pender, even though they were younger. We actually put together this play and I had to adapt it to the actors and singers and performers that I had. And then we took it on the road and we actually went to other schools. We went to Fernwood School and Fulford School and Salt Spring 
as our year-end trip. And so not only were we hiking and climbing Mount Maxwell and and uh, doing what we call the peak-to-peak, -peak, we'd hike from the bottom, the base of Erskine, all, all the way to Burgoyne Bay, which is quite an amazing hike. Then we'd be performing in the school at, you know, the next afternoon. It was, it was pretty cool. It was all, and we played disc golf at Moats Park, and then we'd go and perform at Fulford School. So, so that, that kind of thing was amazing. And then if you, if you think about what it takes to prepare for that, that, that becomes a lot of your curriculum before that. One of the things I tried um, with the high school guys is to give them a bit more stimulation was uh, an amazing race, Pender. And I'd always been a fan of the show. And uh, so I showed them a few clips from the Canadian Amazing Race and had the theme music pumping along and got them excited about it. And I said, we're going to do the Amazing Race. And I, so I paired them up in, well, in the most unlikely pairs you would ever imagine. You know, I take the wildest, craziest grade 12 boy and pair him up with a no-nonsense uh, athletic grade, grade six girl. And, and uh, yeah, and when I announced the pairs, they were just looked at me like, what the heck are you thinking? <laughs> I'm like, this is the way we're going to do it. And this is going to make it fair. And then I gave them a series of challenges. So the first challenge was we're running around the schoolyard um, looking for things, you know, scavenger hunt kind of thing. And, and uh obstacle course on the playground and the last team to arrive was eliminated and then i thought you know i i, I thought this through before because i tried it before and it was a very sad situation because as soon as you're eliminated there's a lot of stigma and sadness attached to that so i made sure i said up front if you're eliminated you're part of the production team and so you get to help with all the challenges and you get to be the person who makes sure that they climb high enough in the tree and and you get to be the person that throws balls at them when they're trying to cross the bridge, you know. And so they're like, okay. <laughs> Some of them wanted to fail just because they wanted to be on the production team, which kind of backfired, but that's okay. So we started by running around the school ground. And then I sent out a message to the parents saying, here's what we're doing. Do you have any things around your house that would be good challenges? And I got, some, I got back lots of replies. So uh, one day we ended up starting at the school in the morning had the music, the theme music playing, and they all left the school, and they had to go to, they had to find their way to the, um, to the campground, Prior Centennial Park, and some of them knew to cut through the bushes from the school there, and some of them went the long way, and they found Laura and a couple of my production members at picnic tables in the park, and they had, and each of them had um, 10 bird pictures on their table. And students had to identify the birds in order to get their next clue. And at one table further away, there were bird books, but they weren't allowed to take the bird books from the table. They had to look at them and then go back and look at the bird and then come run. So they were running back and forth through the campground. And then they were told their next clue was an address. And it happened to be the uh, Lane Cooper's house right near Magic Lake. So some of them would run the Hart Trail. They knew about the heart trail. And I found other kids running up the road by Medicine Beach. I'm like, what are you doing? So I, I would circulate around and make sure they didn't die. And, uh, <laughs> important. Yeah, yes. that was important. And um, they got to Lynn's house and they had to do a sewing challenge. Whoa. So they got in there and the sewing machine, she had all the sewing, means, sewing machines set up. I think they made like a, a little placemat or something or a, or a pot holder. But they had to sit down and, and make this thing. And some kids had never sewn before. So once they showed her that... They'd made it successfully, then they got their next clue. And the next clue took them to the disc golf course. And waiting there was uh, Seth and Josh, two of my production crew. And they were given uh, a set of clues 
which um, were based on a lot of the sponsorship of the holes. And so if a hole was sponsored by, say, Joe Smith, they just have Joe Smith. And they had to figure out which hole Joe Smith was associated with. So they had to run the course and find Joe Smith. And that was an eight. And that eight plugged into an equation. And if they did it right, the equation would answer, would end up with a certain number and they can get the next clue. So they were running all over the place and, and trading answers and so on. And then the next clue, which Seth would hand them, said, um, gave them some other kind of uh, puzzle. But they ended up Joanne Green's house. So she'd buried in sand a number of different things they could dig up. So, so they'd have to do this dig when they got there. And they'd have to pick a piece of shell and figure out what, what kind of shell it was. And if they correctly identified it, they got their next clue. So they were running down the street to get to her house. And then they would do this dig. Meanwhile, some kids are still sewing, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm driving back and forth crazy, crazily. So then they got their next clue, which took them down the hill to our house, to our porch. And uh, they had to wander the porch and look way down into the forest and find some letters. And once they saw the letters, they had to put them together to uh, make a word. And once they gave Laura the word, she'd give them the next clue. So the next clue was a set of coordinates, and they were given a GPS device. And they had to find a geocache hidden under the boardwalk off Capstan. So they followed that, and they knew how to use that because we'd use that quite a bit. And then once they got to Capstan and found the geocache, inside the geocache, I put a message that said, go to the boat area of Magic Lake. So then they had to run from Capstan to Magic Lake. And I was waiting there with a number of um, paddleboards and kayaks. And they had to choose a paddleboard and kayak. They both had to get in. Yeah. And they were given no paddles or anything. And they had to get to another part of the lake over by where the picnic table is. So they were paddling away and people were flipping over and everything. And they had to run all, they had to paddle all the way along the shore to the picnic table. And then they had to carry the board or the, or the kayak all the way back. And then that was the finish line. So they jump on the mountains and they would, and they would uh, be first, second, third, whatever. So that was our day. Whoa, this and is so walked, elaborate. And then we walked back to school on the Hart Trail together, just talking about all the things that happened. So yeah, that was, that was one of our days. And I had all these other people lined up. Oh, I want them to pull weeds in my back. We're going to go to the farm and pick rocks and so on. And uh, I said, well, let's work this into our last, let's work this into our year-end trip. So we decided to go to Whistler for our year-end trip. So we get to Whistler and we have a whole day on the disc golf course at Whistler. And it becomes one of the legs of the trip. And you had to get a certain score or be eliminated. And that took us down to like five teams left. And then we did a day where they went running around from one geocache to the next to try and find clues. And I sat up in the Whistler Celebration Plaza. And my kids, my production crew, drew an end mat and got ready for these teams to come running in. We gave each pair of kids uh, who were left in the race an adult. And the adult had to keep up with them. And the rule was if one team caught up to another team and tagged them, they would have a five-minute time penalty and they have to wait five minutes before they could join to catch up. So we had a lot of parents who became really, really, really um, competitive and tagged each other and almost knocked each other over. But there we were in the Celebration Plaza at Whistler and there's about 100 tourists on the grass picnicking and everything. And all of a sudden they see that, and I had this mat that looked like the Amazing Race mat. And we had Amazing Race flags. 
and then they see these kids come running in, you know, and then all my other kids are cheering for them and make this, you know, make these two rows so they could run down just like the finale of the Amazing Race. And they're all cheering and all these, all these tourists are standing up and clapping. <laughs> and here come these kids with their parent and they're looking around at all these people and they jump on the mat and I say, congratulations, you've won the Amazing Race. And, and I had ice cream ready for them. And then, you know, everybody look, looking down through the uh, streets of Whistler to watch for the next team coming. Yeah, it was pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Seriously, what, what year was that? Uh, that was about three years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we had, one of the legs was going around Whistler doing a scavenger hunt for each letter of the alphabet. And the A was an Australian. They had to find an Australian and get them to say where they were from and sign their paper and so on. So they said, where are we going to find an Australian? Everywhere. It's Whistler. <laughs> Yeah, so that was another league. So, so we tied that into our our year end year end trip in Whistler. Camped out at Calcheek Forest Service, and we climbed the Black Tusk. We climbed uh, up a Garibaldi, and yeah, it was a pretty amazing trip. But that's the thing, you know, those are the kind of things kids and their parents talk about for years to come. Yeah, totally. And that's that's I've never heard those stories before. That's really yeah. amazing. That's yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, definitely. Right. I, like, I can't believe the amount of distance covered when you were describing going from the school to the campground to different people's houses, Magic Lake, <laughs> and then back. Yeah, and to have all those parents support it, you know, and to get excited about it, and and all the kids to get right into it, it was amazing. You know, and yeah, that was exciting. Yeah, and a big source of pride too was was the kids who graduated with us, you know, Pender grads. It's just like that first year of the, we had one boy who his family never thought he'd graduate and he did. And he was the, he was the one, the one grad at our year end ceremony at, at the school. And we had to ambush him because I was told that if we tried to do anything for him, he would run. We snuck his parents over because they're from, from Shawnigan Lake or Victoria at that point. His parents and girlfriend came over. And they were hiding in the audience. And uh, the kids have been practicing. I had a fantastically musical group. And they worked with Ben McConkie a lot. He was a fantastic supporter of our program. But we knew that, that Keith really liked Green Day. And so we practiced Time of Your Life. Um, but that's also called Good Riddance. So that kind of worked out differently for a graduation ceremony. But uh, yeah, we practiced Time of Your Life without him knowing. A few times he wa- walked in on us and trying to figure out what we were doing. But anyways, we, uh, a couple of the girls who also came from Seek put together a slideshow. And at the end of the award ceremony, that's for all the kids in the school, about 300 parents in there, I brought them up and held on to them <laughs> up front. You know, and I said, we got something for you, Keith. And like, Arr. and uh, we played the slideshow and they sang, a group of my kids, six or seven kids sang Time of Your Life, you know, with a, complete with Anjou from Salt Spring on the, you know, doing it, you know, just like, oh, just like professional quality. And he was standing there and his tears were rolling down his cheeks and a lot of parents were crying and didn't even know him. <laughs> and I got, I heard afterwards that was, you know, they thought it was really touching. And then the whole class converged on him and a big group hug. So that right. was a pretty special moment just to think that, you know, he is, he is basically told you can't come back to seek kind of kind of homeless not sure what he was doing loose ends and then i said well we'll create a place for them here on the island and that really worked out and even last year with covid you know i had three grads um, two local girls uh, taven and quinn and then 
Rowan, who'd been with me for two years, and she's from East Van. She used to take the ferry over every weekend. And I wanted to give them something special, too, just for, for trusting in the program and trusting in Pender to be their place to, to graduate. And so I had to, do, had to prepare this elaborate COVID plan. But we ended up out at um, Audrey and David Green's place at Brooks Point. They have a beautiful sloping lawn there, and they offered it to us. And we spread out all our people. Uh, physically distance, had a stage set up and had this really amazing, uh, amazing graduation um, ceremony for them. Some of their past colleagues came back and played music and and sang and uh, humpback whale went by while we were setting up, you know, and then at the very end, the girls had their little grad dresses on. They went out on paddle boards in the bay and a double rainbow came out. Double rainbow. Yeah, it was raining during the last, last few speeches, you know, just raining enough on a nice hot day that was it was beautiful but then to see them out there on their in their grad dresses on paddle boards with the double rainbows where else are you going to get that for grad you know? i don't know nowhere <laughs> yeah wow so those, those kind of things really made me feel like okay all the work and all the all the energy and all the creativity paid off it seems like you're trying to create moments for the kids you're not just trying to educate them. You're not just trying to set them up for something greater in the future, but you're trying to create these super special moments for them all the time. Yeah, it's it, well, I guess it's just about them loving learning and loving where they are. I think that's that's my goal is to make it is to make school real. You know, make to make it to make it feel like yeah, this is this is an important part of my life. You know, it's too often people say that school is preparation for real life as if what they're doing in school is fake and it doesn't count. Mm. And if you have that attitude as a teacher, it changes the way you teach just to think everything's rehearsal or practice for something more important. And you need to change that and go, no, this is real. This is their life. This is a big part of their life. And it's not preparation for real life. It is real life. And if we treat it that way, we look at it at a whole different, whole different lens as a teacher is to think this is real. This is as good as it gets. Why wait until you graduate? Okay. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think so many of us look at life as this real grind and as this drudgery that we go through of repetition. And, uh, I have memories of school being the same way, right? Like, oh, another year, got to do this class over again. And not too much changes, right? And there's not a lot of unique experiences. There's not a lot of creativity. There's not a lot of, like, zest to the experience, right? But what I'm hearing you saying is that you're creating all these magical experiences for kids to have that are really unique and uh, giving them opportunity to really engage with the natural world and, and life and that to me, I would think that that would translate into having a completely different view of life once they graduate. I think that what you're creating is um, an opportunity for kids just to uh, become a different kind of adult. Yeah, well, when you think back to your own school career, there's probably really bright moments when you remember when something was good or some teacher did something that made you feel like you were important or that made school fun for you even if it was just one activity and you know I was the same way when I went to school I had some really dreary teachers but I also had some amazing inspiring people and I guess I always felt if I ever become a teacher (laughs) I'm going to be one of those people who 
tries to be more inspiring. And it's the same with teacher training. When I went through teacher training, I was told at one point that I wouldn't, I shouldn't be a teacher. Well, really? Yeah, my supervisor said, you should consider, um, you should consider pulling the plug. Yeah, I don't think you can do this. But I, I felt like I was really relating well to the, to the kids in my practicum. And I said, no, I, I can do this. And, you know, that was back in the day when there's a, when there was too many teachers and, you know, they started the year by saying, you know, look to your right, look to your left. Those people won't be here when we're done. You know, it was like a boot camp. Yikes. And, I, and uh, Laura was in my class at that time and she was told to leave and she left. And I just said, no, forget it. And so when I became a teacher trainer, I never wanted to repeat that experience. I wanted to make sure that my, the teachers I taught would have this joy uh, and this passion and this creativity and teach teach people and not courses and so i think you know even if you go through a, a school career where there are challenges if you can sort of seize on the on the good parts and then try and recreate that in your life that's the key you know one of my highlights now is getting emails from long lost students who say do you remember me you know i um, i just had one from a from one of my um Sikh kids who i had with me for five years She's now in um, Nova Scotia, going to university there, and she just got a job as a as a research assistant, and she was so excited. And she said, "I never could have done this without you and without without my time at Seek. You know, I never had any confidence. I I never had any direction and organizational skills, and and uh, you gave you know you and the program gave that to me, and I just wanted to thank you. And just to have somebody that self aware was pretty cool. You know, she's now twenty. 23, 24, just to realize that some of the people that uh, she could be grateful for was amazing. And I had another boy who I, I never even thought that I had given very much to because it was a year of um, strike and work to rule. And I had all these plans for my class with Dawson Creek. And uh, I couldn't do all the things I wanted to do. All the clubs weren't allowed to do all the clubs and all that extra time. So I just throw a football around with him at, at recess and lunch. And, and then he was given this assignment in grade 12, five or six years later, where he had to write to a teacher that made a difference. And I got this letter in the mail, this out of nowhere, and I was like, wow, I can't believe it. You know, this kid thinks I made this difference. And, and I don't remember, you know, it wasn't anything special. It wasn't, but I guess it was just a, as just a way of being with kids. So that's really kind of a, a payoff in a profession that can feel really uh, thankless at times. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's not tangible and it's not something that you can put in the bank or it's not something that you can put on your wall. But the thing is, is that uh, it's a feeling, it's a feeling that you get that's priceless from something like that because it's the surprise yeah. of, Oh, let's what's in my inbox today. And then getting a thank you, a heartfelt thank you from somebody is one of the, uh, the best feelings in the world, really. It's pretty cool, yeah, especially from people you don't expect or people that uh, one one young woman I had trouble with when she came to seek, but I didn't know she was dealing with so much depression and, and issues that I never even understood. I just thought she was lazy and and uh, lacked focus. And you know, then she sent me a message a couple months ago from uh, she's going to the United Nations-sponsored university in Costa Rica, I believe, and she's learning how to be a... Um, a, lead, a change leader, a youth change leader. And she said, you know, I just wanted you to know that I'm here because of what you did. 
and uh, I'm sorry for all the all the pain I caused you. <laughs> but now I see why you did some of the things you did. Back then, I just thought you were being an idiot. <laughs> I just used a stronger term, but yeah, she just I couldn't get I couldn't understand what the hell you were doing, and it really pissed me off. And I was angry, and I was going through a rough time in my life. But you know, please know that I'm here now, and I'm surrounded by other young people from around the world and I'm feeling like this is my place and I and I'm thinking wow some of the things that we did together got me here you know and just to think wow this is the kid that I had so much trouble with you know that gave me all these uh, gray hairs and caused me to look for younger kids to teach but I guess I did you know something worked out that's great. Yeah. So, so how did you change through all these experiences that you had? Because there's so many years of teaching, so many different experiences, different places. Like, how did you evolve as a person through this process? Oh, that's a good question. It's a, I think it's a really hard question, actually, because yeah. there's a lot of years. But uh, I'll just because throw that. I, well, I've I've been able to think about it because I've been retired since June, and I always put off the idea of retirement because I thought. Um, I would miss it too much. I would miss the opportunity to be creative and work with kids and and uh, but then it became really clear to me last spring that almost all my all the kids in my class wanted to go to the high school next year on Salt Spring. And I was willing to keep going with them, you know, my whole dream of taking them right through to grade 12 never happened because those grade 4s were now ready for grade 9 five years later and they just and their parents or I don't know tradition suggested they had to leave Pender school and I thought I had a lot more to give and it's it became obvious to me that uh, uh, they're all going to move on well, no matter what past we'd shared how, no matter how happy they were with what I was doing it was just time it's what you do when you get to this grade and so I said okay they're done I'm done we're going to retire together and uh yeah, so I, I've had time to look back and go, well, who was I at that point? And one thing I, I said when I, when I was retiring was, it's going to give me a chance to do all the writing and all the things I always wanted to do that I never took the time to do because I just poured so much into my career. And now I'm finding I'm so busy. I've got so many projects, and I don't, surprisingly, shockingly, I don't miss the kids. I don't miss the teaching. I don't feel like I'm responsible for them anymore. I don't feel like I'm, um, I don't even feel like I'm an educational innovator anymore. All the things that used to be my identity, uh, you know, I used to give workshops and do institutes and people would come to me with questions. Now I feel like that's not even me anymore. I'm not even, I'm not even um, qualified <laughs> to do that. And I, and I don't miss being in the classroom. And I'm just like, wow, that's shocking. Because that was my life. That's That was my life blood for so many years. So who was I? <laughs> and and what am I now? So it's, you know, I, I once heard from a retired teacher who said, the number one thing you need to do is let go of your ego. She said, I couldn't come to terms with retirement till I let go of my ego. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what that means. I didn't understand what she meant. But now I kind of get it. It's like, um, I'd built myself and built myself and worked hard to take myself to a certain level as a teacher, as an educator, where I thought I was doing a lot of groundbreaking stuff and providing this classroom where 
or this learning environment where people could thrive. And then it was done. And it was like, okay, let's try something new. And I, I thought there'd be a more of a sense of loss or a grieving process, or, but there wasn't. So maybe I started to get more and more, um, I don't know how to, how to put it. I guess I was moving in a direction where I was so focused on that direction as a teacher and getting better and better at what I did, taking more and more risks and offering more and more assistance to others that I lost sight of. Um, that, 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 I guess that just became my essence. And so stepping away from that, I've been able to see that, you know, no, maybe that's not who I am. Maybe there's other parts of me that need to come out now and I need to relax more and I need to not be as stressed and I, and I need to not lay awake at night worrying about a student and how I was going to help them or how, um, how I was going to adjust my skills to make things better for them. So, yeah, I think I just became really obsessed. <laughs> so it, like, it sounds like a, a big weight was lifted uh, as well, right? That what you're saying about not having to worry about certain students or... Yeah, it was it was lifted, but not not like someone came and took it off me. It's it's been lifting slowly over the last number of months, and not as quickly as I would hope because of the whole COVID situation. That's that's another weight, right? So, so I don't feel like the weight's been lifted totally yet. Although I'm trying to focus on on letting that weight float away, mm. and that's hard for me because I because I was I realized I was so driven, I was so eat, sleep, and breathe teaching, so purposeful. What's it like to sit in the forest, you know, to go to disc golf in the morning when I'm the only one there and sit on the bench and just listen to the birds, not feel like I have to play the next hole right away, you know? Was, whereas when I was teaching, I would get up there and I would be very purposeful in, what, in my approach. And now I just kind of try and sit down and go, okay, I'm here, and that's a good thing. <laughs> and that's all it, all it needs to matter right now. And I kind of lost that when I was teaching. Thanks for sharing that. I, th I think that there's so many important parts of that. And maybe someday you're going to teach a workshop on how people can retire. Well, <laughs> no, I'm no longer qualified. Remember? <laughs> well, no, but you're going to, you're gaining new qualifications by what you're learning right now about uh, going through retirement. And, you know, I, talking about like uh, allowing a weight to lift is a, uh, is a great way to describe it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And you're welcome. Yeah, but I'm I'm being totally serious. Like, thanks for the vulnerability in that moment. Thank you very much for sharing that. Because I think having spent so long doing something in your life and then all of a sudden the end comes, it's super difficult for people from what I hear. Retirement's not as easy as, as you would think it would be. But the yeah. fact that you're keeping yourself really busy and being engaged in things obviously is super helpful. Yeah, I think the fact that I'm writing... Uh, connects me to my past too so i'm not i haven't just chopped it off it's still living within me and i'm writing stories about things i did with my kids so that's still that's still a part of my consciousness so that, that i think that's helped too just to be that introspective and retrospective at the same time yeah yeah writing i heard somebody describe it once that they don't know what they think until they write it down that it's it's such a valuable process and helping us understand yeah. ourselves yeah and that just talking out loud is completely different from having it written down right in front of you and 
rereading it and being like, oh, that's that's what I actually feel and think about this situation. And it, it can be super amazing and yeah, the self-discovery that comes through writing. But it can we talked about writing when we first started off the interview, but uh if if you wanna describe again as to what you're working on now with uh with the specific stories and and uh, maybe what you're thinking about writing in the future. Yeah, right now I'm working on a collection of short stories about travels that Laura and I have done together. So there's 10 longer stories about um set in different places around the world where we where we visited. So we've got one where we're in a place called Ruba Hanish on the Isle of Skye uh looking for seabirds in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we've got one where we're we're hunting for a cassowary, which is this giant uh, ostrich-like bird um, on the coast of Queensland, and realizing that we're out in the middle of nowhere and this bird could easily take us down. <laughs> and I've got one where we did a top-end um, camping trip in the Northern Territory, Kakadu National Park up by Darwin, and and how that was, and and then simple stories like the time we were driving uh, along the Similkameen River near Manning Park and came upon a grouse, a baby grouse in the middle of the road, pulled over and rescued it from the middle of the road, and what that was like. And another time we we stopped our van in a truck stop in Brooks, Alberta, and tried to sleep in our van amongst all these truckers, and what that was like. So it's kind of a very eclectic selection of uh, uh, adventures. And then in between each of the longer stories will be a short story, which will be a travel tip that allows me to tell um, smaller stories with a common theme. So that, that's, that's been a lot of fun to take those little bits and pieces of stories and put them together. Like, for example, there's one that's a travel tip that's uh, read the signs. So it talks about all the experiences, well, not all experiences, some of the experiences I've had reading signs in different countries, and then it actually gets into uh, five different signs I saw as I traveled around Australia. Um, so just a little one or two pages like that to join it together. So I'm hoping it's going to be a uh, a fun kind of collection, especially at this time when people can't travel. That's been it's been my form of travel in the last few months, right? Totally. Yeah. Remembering going different places and really going deep into those memories has like helped me as well too. Yeah. And, and yeah, thinking sure. like, oh, that was really wonderful being in New Zealand and being in Argentina. <laughs> I was just talking to my wife this morning about, oh, that time we were in Argentina and it was the big smile that came across my face like it is now because yeah. like these uh, opportunities are not present at the moment to go to these places. Yeah. And the best best feedback I've gotten so far from my family who I've read them to, some of the stories too, is felt like they were there so that that's that's powerful is because when i write them i i want to create that feeling that i'm there right because that's that's the closest i have to actually getting a chance to go there so yeah it's been pretty cool yeah totally you know somebody mentioned to me if uh, a couple of weeks ago the idea of going on google maps or google street view and I did that once, and I looked at this uh, old street in New Zealand in this uh, this town that we lived in for three months, and I did Google Street View, and everything had changed. Nothing looked the wow. same, and it was a really kind of empty experience versus the idea of me going through my memory and remembering what was there and right. sort of mentally walking the street. Yeah. That was so much more fulfilling than going on to the computer and using a piece of technology to do it for me, Yeah, you know, like exploring through our memory and then... On top of that, writing it down, because I've spent a lot of time in the past doing personal essays where I write about experiences that I have had in the past. Cool. It's so rewarding. 
it's so nice yeah. because the thing is that uh, it's really engaging and time flies when you're doing it. And then at the end, you're able to look at those experiences that happened 20 years ago, 5, 15, 50 in some cases for some people, whatever, right? And that, um, yeah, really see yourself differently and and uh, have a wonderful experience of recollecting those past experiences, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've just finished, um, well, not finished, but in the process of refinishing our basement. So I had this huge wall, trying to think of what to do with the wall. So I've decided to put up maps, like I kind of a wallpaper, and they're maps from all over the world of places we've been. And then I've created stickers of, like, camping, hotel, cycling, kayaking, disc golf, and I stick them on the maps where we've been and doing those activities. And I draw on the roads that we've traveled and the roads that we've biked and the waterways we've kayaked. And these are all going to go up on this wall. So you'll be able to go and stand there and and see the, all these travels from, you know, I have a small little map of the Lockside, and Lockside Trail and Galloping Goose, you know, all the way up to a map that shows from Yellowstone up to uh, Jasper and just all the places we've been. So that's been fun to just, remember where we've camped and where we've driven and and biked and kayaked so totally yeah and those those things are amazing but also that getting back to what you're talking about before with getting the kids to go on the amazing race and really connecting with the land of where we live on pender and then spending a lot of time walking around and exploring different places on our island and i know that you and laura do some e-biking on the island and like right. you, I see outside a lot. Right. And then you're also doing geocaching as well too, is that we can have so many different experiences on this small Island. There is so many places to go to revisit over and over again in different seasons. And, um, yeah, that's so true. It is like, we live in such a beautiful place and, uh, yeah, I think it's important to remember that as well too, that I, I really like the idea of limitations is that when, we have uh, a lot of opportunities that are taken away from us and we're not able to do this, then I find that there's a lot of creativity that comes with those limitations. It's like, oh, well, what can I do? And that we can go explore our island as much as we'd like and that uh, there's so much beauty to be taken in. And uh, That's true. There's so much beauty in so little time. And yet I see so many people are so depressed at this time and feeling like they're stuck or feeling like they're limited. And so it's just a mindset, you know, like, well, look where we live. This is a great place to be right now in the world. Yeah. We have to take, we have to make, uh, make use of it and, and go, wow, this is, this is incredible. So we've been going down to Thieves Bay most evenings and watching the sunset. I mean, something so simple as that. And that's there for everybody. Yeah. You know, there's a bunch of picnic tables out there in the breakwater and more and more people are doing it. And you get the orcas going by and the sea lions and and little birds, and the fairies, and you get to see where the sun sets in a different spot each night, closer and closer to Mount Maxwell, and you just got, you just become aware of, of the natural world, and I don't know if that would have happened if, no, certainly wouldn't happen during my teaching career, because <laughs> I'd be too busy or too tired, and it also would maybe not happen if it hadn't been for COVID, and that became one of our go-to places, just to, to feel like we had this connection to the bigger world where there wasn't well, there weren't all these people who were worried or, or sick. So, yeah. I love what you say about seeing the sun going down at different spots, that there's something so beautiful about seeing the slow progression of nature 
Yeah. And going back to it over and over again, just one of the most amazing things to me right now is that we're in early spring seeing the maple buds opening up right now. Right. Oh my gosh. It's so beautiful. (laughs) It's It's so beautiful. Yeah. It is. And that the thing is to go revisit a tree each day in your yard or down your street or whatever. And just to see that slow progression is uh, such a thrill to me because nature is so amazing. And right now when things are blooming, you know, buds are turning into flowers and uh, it's, it's really, really a special thing to get to, uh, to witness that. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to, um, I think we're going to wind this down okay. in a little bit, but uh, we're not finished yet. But uh, I was just wondering, is, is there any things that uh, you wanted to mention or talk about that we didn't get to on, on this podcast? There's probably There's a lot. There's probably too many things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah. No, I could, I could talk for uh, about a lot of things, but no, I think that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just let the uh, listeners know that I, I have decided that I'm going to be removing the second traditional question I always ask, which is who has given you help on Pender Island? Uh, because it was a really great question, I thought, for a while, but it seems as if that it uh, is uncomfortable for uh, everybody to answer because there are so many people that have given help to us in our lives on this island and that uh, I hear from one guest after another that they're worried about leaving people out, that yes. the list is so long. And and at first it was so beautiful when I realized, oh, wow, look at all these people that have given help and this is so beautiful. We live in such a helpful place and this was so uh, important for me to to realize through that, but I don't want people to feel uncomfortable in uh, feeling as if they might leave somebody important out. So I'm not going to ask that of you today, Steve. And <laughs> oh, as I will I, not... I did mention a lot of people, I think. You did. There were... were key people, so... There but were. there's many more. <laughs> <laughs> you were not forgotten. That's right. And you will not be officially forgotten in this. But, uh, yeah, and then thanks. I really appreciate you coming to do this. It's really cool for me that people... Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're uh, we're just hanging out in the backyard right now. The sun's been on us the whole time, and uh, we're just hanging out in my backyard, and uh, it's yeah. been a pretty special experience. But I'll give you I'll give you a, uh, the final word here. Anything that you want to end off? Any thoughts that you've had recently, or things that you want to share with people to, uh, to end off? Nope, nothing I can think of. I think I said a lot of stuff that I didn't even think I was going to say. So that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I like listening to the birds. That's uh, Another another of my passions that I didn't mention, but especially this time of year, is to hear them all around us. So just as you watch the, the trees, I watch which birds are back. So just sitting here, you got a beautiful, beautiful yard and lots of different species of trees and grass. And this would be a great place for birds. That's one of the things I like about the disc golf course is you can go and, you know, there's about 15 different species of birds there. And, uh, draw strength from them when you're hitting trees with plastic <laughs> what uh what birds have you noticed <laughs> that are back right now uh i'm starting to hear a lot of more of the transient birds in the canopy you know vireos and crossbills there's even some warblers back i heard my first orange crown warbler and yellow rump warbler over at roseland the other day so it's kind of cool to see those birds coming back lots of pine siskins woodpeckers um, the Pacific wrens are starting to sing their mating song now. The juncos are starting to sing their mating song. So, and then when we play night golf, hearing the hearing the barred owls is pretty special. Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah, super special. Yeah. Right on. Okay, well, there you have it. Listen to the birds, people. Right. Listen to the birds. Thank you, Steve. Don't go on Twitter. All right. Well, thank you once again to Steve for doing that interview. And to honor that interview, I decided I would come down to Saturna View Trail. So this little trail is a loop, and I've never been here before. And it is off of Canal Road and, of course, looks out over towards Saturna Island. And there are two reasons that I came to this funny little ragtag trail (laughs) and the first of which is that Steve of course mentioned his time on Saturna and second of all I really love seeing Saturna Island it uh gives me a lot of comfort to look out through the driver's side window as I'm going down towards the South Island and see this massive land across the water it's really comforting I really really like it a lot so uh, I don't know if I'd recommend taking this trail, but it is a real joy to get to come to new places and do these wrap-ups and see what they're like. So once again, thank you, Steve, and thank you to Ben McConkey for providing the theme music for this show. And thank you for showing up and listening to this and sticking around to the very end. It's amazing. Thank you. Until next time.